Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time covering the Business Week ended 2nd June 2023. This is Ian Haydock. In this episode, a preview of ASCO, Roche's CEO on new opportunities, Sanofi sees success in MS, Phase 2 lupus win for AbbVie, and a Chinese product case study in psoriasis. The American Society of Clinical Oncology's 2023 annual meeting is taking place this week in Chicago and includes a variety of important data sets across oncology, particularly in solid tumours. Alarika Diamond highlighted some of the main presentations, including Novartis' Kiskali in breast cancer. In April, the Swiss drug maker announced as part of its first quarter earnings that it would cull its pipeline to streamline its R&D and commercial focus. But one of the survivors of the move was Kiskali, a CDK4-6 inhibitor for breast cancer. That should come as no surprise given the announcement of successful results the month before from the pivotal Phase 3 Natalie trial in patients with HR+, HER2 negative early breast cancer including those with stage 2A3 tumours regardless of nodal involvement, which analysts have forecast could double its peak sales potential to $8 billion. Data from the trial showed that the drug administered at 400mg along with endocrine therapy met the invasive disease-free survival primary endpoint compared with endocrine therapy alone in patients at both high and intermediate risk of recurrence, which led Natalie's Independent Data Monitoring Committee to recommend stopping the trial. AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo have also found significant success with NHER2, their HER2-targeting antibody drug conjugate, which in 2022 reached blockbuster sales of $1.17 billion. That's just in the four indications, two in breast cancer, one in non-small cell lung cancer, and one in gastric and gastroesophageal junction cancer, in which it has approval. With the Destiny Pantuma O2 study, the British and Japanese drug makers are now looking to expand NHER2's use into additional cancer indications. The 268-patient Phase 2 study has completed enrolment of patients with HER2-expressing urothelial bladder cancer, biliary tract cancer, cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer and rare tumours. So far, the study is off to a decent start. In March, AstraZeneca said the study met the pre-specified target for objective response rate and duration of response across multiple tumour types in heavily pre-treated patients, although it did not announce numerical data. Another oncology partnership that has paid off so far is Servier's acquisition of Agios Pharmaceuticals' cancer drug portfolio in 2020 for $1.8 billion, including the IDH inhibitor forosidinib, which the French drug maker is developing in low-grade glioma carrying an IDH1 or IDH2 mutation, both of which the drug blocks. In March, Servier said the Phase 3 Indigo trial testing the drug at 40 mg met its primary endpoint of progression-free survival over a 30-month time frame. Gliomas have proven to be a challenging area for drug development with a long litany of failures, so the interim results from Indigo provide a rare example of potential promise. At ASCO, Servier will present results of Indigo at a plenary session.
Check out the article for other selected highlights of key ASCO data, including from Immunogen and AstraZeneca. Roche Pharmaceuticals CEO Teresa Graham said she remains enthusiastic about the opportunity for new drugs in Alzheimer's disease, encouraged by Roche's late-stage pipeline across therapeutic areas in one of her first appearances since assuming the leadership role. Jessica Mellon writes that Graham took over the top pharma role at Roche in March, succeeding Bill Anderson, who left the company last year and was appointed CEO of Bayer. The transition comes amid a broader leadership shakeup at Roche, with CEO Severin Schwann also stepping down this year to be succeeded by Thomas Schinnecker. Graham had the opportunity to share some of her thoughts on Roche's pharmaceutical business and industry trends more generally during a presentation at the Financial Times Pharma and Biotech Summit in New York on 17th May. I think my priorities are pretty clear and probably not too different from my peers in the industry, she said. Roche is an innovative company. We pride ourselves on bringing additional innovation to patients, so ensuring that we are continuing to have the most robust and innovative pipeline in the industry is clearly top of mind. One therapeutic area she discussed at length was Alzheimer's disease, where Roche recently had a big setback with the failure in phase 3 of its anti-amyloid antibody, gantanerumab, even as rivals, including Azi and Biogen and Lilly, were able to demonstrate efficacy in late-stage trials with similar drugs for the first time. Despite substantial investment in Alzheimer's over various clinical trials and many years, Roche has yet to deliver a late-stage clinical trial success, but Graham suggested that the company will continue to invest in the therapeutic area for the long term. The advances that have been made over the last several years are important, but not a cure. There's a long way to go to find an actual cure for Alzheimer's, she said. I think we are 100% still interested in making these advances for patients. I don't think anybody can afford not to be in the Alzheimer's race, she added. There's too much at stake when you think about the ageing population, when you think about the sheer financial costs of Alzheimer's to already strained healthcare systems. Graham pointed out a lot remains unknown about Alzheimer's and neurological conditions more generally. Personally, I wonder a lot about whether or not combinations are ultimately going to be what it will take to actually see the really big breakthroughs in signs and symptoms, which is ultimately what will help improve patients' lives and remove costs from the system, she said. But my suspicion is also there's a lot we don't know yet. Graham also highlighted several other late-stage pipeline candidates that she is enthusiastic about and believes will become new growth drivers for the company. These include the BTK inhibitor fenabrutinib in development for multiple sclerosis, the selective estrogen receptor degrader giridestrant for breast cancer, astagolimab for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and a gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy partnered with Serepta Therapeutics. Sanofi's growth plans for its multiple sclerosis franchise have been boosted by positive mid-stage data for the investigational anti-CD40L antibody Frexalimab. Kevin Grogan writes the French drug maker will be presenting data from a 129 patient phase 2 trial in a late-breaking session 
at the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers meeting in Colorado, US, which demonstrate that frexalimab significantly reduced disease activity in patients with relapsing MS. The drug, which Sanofi licensed from Immunext in 2017, was also well tolerated. MS expert Gavin Giovannoni of the Queen Mary University of London said that fraxalimab had a unique mechanism of action blocking the CD40-CD40L co-stimulatory pathway thought to regulate both adaptive and innate immune cell activation and function, a pathway that is pivotal in the pathogenesis of MS, he noted. He added the results show that CD40L inhibition rapidly controls MS disease activity without lymphocyte depletion. Eric Wallström, who's head of neurology at Sanofi, said that the company was committed to growing our robust pipeline of MS therapies by exploring multiple treatment approaches with unique MOAs that have the potential to slow or halt disability, which remains one of the greatest unmet medical needs in MS. Fexalimab will now move into phase three trials in early 2024. AbbVie's JAK inhibitor Rinvoc has hit the bullseye in a Phase 2 systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, trial, sparking hopes for a pivotal program in the works, even though a Rinvoc combination with the firm's selective BTK inhibitor candidate, Elsabrutinib, disappointed. Aisha Sharma writes Rinvoc is currently approved for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis and other conditions, and full-year 2022 revenues of the product rocketed by 53% to $2.52 billion. New top-line data from the Phase 2 SLE-EK trial in 341 SLE patients have revealed that more patients receiving single-agent Rinvoc or high-dose Rinvoc plus Elsabrutinib met the trial's dual primary endpoint at 48 weeks when compared with placebo. This endpoint comprised a minimum four-point reduction in the systemic lupus erythematosus disease activity index 2000 score and a maximum steroid dose of 10 mg prednisone or equivalent once a day. In the single agent arm, 54.8% of patients achieved the primary endpoint versus 37.3% of those on placebo, P equals 0.028. While high-dose Rimbok plus Elzabrutinib missed significance with 48.5% of patients meeting the primary endpoint, P equals 0.081, the outcome was unsurprising seeing as at the time of the interim analysis, AbbVie had announced it did not plan to advance the combination as Elzabrutinib did not contribute efficacy. The firm now plans to progress Rimbok into the Phase 3 Select SLE programme which comprises three studies and will investigate the drug versus placebo in 1,000 people with moderately to severely active lupus. A label expansion to SLE could open up a market of 1.5 million more patients in the US. The complex autoimmune disorder is characterised by fatigue, joint pain and impaired function, among other symptoms, and there is currently no cure for it. In 2021, AstraZeneca's type 1 interferon inhibitor, Safnalo, became the first new drug to be approved for SLE for more than a decade, but other attempts to break into the lupus market through JAK inhibition have largely failed, 
including Lily's Oleomiant and Gilead Sciences and Galapagos's Gisalica. However, there are currently five other JAK inhibitors in active clinical development for the treatment of SLE, according to Sightline's pharma projects, including Bristol-Myers-Squibb's TYK2 inhibitor, so TIC2. Finally, sales of a global first-in-class dermatology drug that gained its first approval in China are falling well behind those of its overseas counterpart. And in this case study, Brian Yang looks at the multiple underlying factors beyond pricing and reimbursement coverage, including complex hospital entry, dual tunnels and competition considerations that have been behind this. As a Chinese domestically developed first-in-class topical non-steroidal treatment, and the first new drug for plaque psoriasis in 25 years, Benvitimob, also known as Tepinarov and WBI-1001, encountered a surprisingly uphill battle to gain commercial success on its home turf. It first gained national attention in China back in 2012, when global ex-Greater China rights were acquired from Toronto-listed Wellichem Biotech by GSK Dermatology subsidiary Stiefel. In 2018, GSK subsequently sold its ex-China rights to Roy Vant Sciences, dermatology operation Dermavant Sciences, and then in 2013, Wellichem acquired from Celestial and Beijing Wenfeng Changi Pharmaceuticals exclusive rights to the drug in Greater China. Marketed as Symbiox in China, it logged sales of only about 4.9 million US dollars in 2022, and despite its 15% growth from the previous year, the figure was anemic compared to the same active ingredients performance outside China, where Tepinarov was approved by the US FDA as Vitama in 2022. In China, everything had seemed to be on the right track for Symbiox. The drug was included in annual discussions for possible inclusion in the National Reimbursement Drug List, or NRDL, and seemed poised to gain market share. China also has one of the largest patient populations with plaque psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, which is another indication currently under phase 3 development in China. However, while inclusion in the NRDL offers the promise of higher volumes, it does not mean a new drug will automatically enter hospitals. Each province in China must also set its own reimbursement rate and incorporate the product into provincial-level reimbursement lists as well. On top of this, even after formulary inclusion, prescriptions are constantly monitored given there are limits to the ratio of drugs within overall reimbursement costs and to reduce excessive prescriptions, physician prescribing patterns are also monitored. Meanwhile, nationwide rollout into diagnosis-related group and diagnosis intervention packet schemes in China were other factors behind the drug's performance. China's medical insurance agency has also initiated a new channel along with hospitals for new drugs included in the NRDL since 2020, under which designated retail pharmacies can also dispense such products under a dual-channel mechanism. But while the dual-channel did put retail pharmacies on level ground with hospitals, as reimbursed prices are pre-negotiated, the drugstore cannot add a margin. Also, to meet strict product tracking, storage and distribution requirements, pharmacies must upgrade their information systems to qualify for the mechanism. 
On top of this, getting reimbursed new drugs into retail pharmacies remains a challenge and patients report difficulties finding particular drugs. And even if these are available, the pharmacy may not be able to offer coverage due to a lack of processing equipment. Do check out the article in full for a more complete breakdown of the complex factors determining commercial success for this particular plaxoriasis drug in China. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. And a reminder that all the stories mentioned here are linked in the article accompanying this podcast, which is in turn linked in the description below. Log in to access all of Scripps' much more extensive content from our global team, or sign up for a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.